This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor here at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. Hi, Thea. How are you doing? I'm all right, thank you. Um, what's new with you? I hear I hear speak of a bookshop. Yeah, another bookshop. So we've got another um, wonderful recommendation from around the world. So this is from Laura in Auckland. We're very happy to hear from Laura. She's my favourite independent bookshop in Auckland. It's on the North Shore at Milford, and it's called the Book Lover Bookshop owned and run by Olivia with the help of Rachel and Bria and they will do their best to find you any book that you order. She said recently they delivered a book to my front door out of the kindness of their hearts when I was stuck at home having had all my wisdom teeth out. That's that's pretty impressive isn't it? She says last week we went to a literary quiz night they organised, could have done with the TLS team to help us out. I'm not sure about that, I'm not sure we could have. I'm not sure we would have been much help. (laughs) Let's go with the idea that we would have been very very helpful. They have a book club and a book subscription service and they leave encouraging messages on the A board, you know, the sort of... um, Like a notice board. Yeah, yeah, outside the shop. And she also sent some pictures of those, of which my favourite is bookshops are an an excellent natural sunblock. Isn't that brilliant? (laughs) Not for me. I insist on reading in full sun. Whenever the sun is available, I'm in it. No, but a bookshop. Oh, bookshop, a bookshop. Yes, I thought I was thinking a book as in because you would stay indoors and read it. No, 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 the the edifice. The bookshop itself. Okay, well, yes, I can't argue with that. This is true. Yeah, yeah. So that's a brilliant shout out from Laura in New Zealand. Well, thank you. Um, We would always be glad to hear of more bookshops that you cherish. Um, Coming up on this week's show... The publication of the diary of a European bureaucrat might not strike you as publishing's most exciting moment. But when you add the word secret and the diarist's name, things get decidedly more intriguing. The book is as yet available only in French, so we have Henri Astier on hand to guide us through. Plus, what does Brexit mean for publishers and writers? Our NB columnist looks into the matter.
But first, the 1969 film Midnight Cowboy, directed by John Schlesinger, tells the tale of a Texan potwash called Joe Buck, played by John Voigt, who packs up to make it in New York as a sex worker. He feels good about his prospects. In the first frames, he showers away his old life, unwraps fresh cowboy boots and hat, and throws on the fringe jacket so crucial to his image. He hits the road, beloved radio in hand, as if to set his own soundtrack. Unsurprisingly, things don't go as well as he had hoped. On his first job, he ends up paying the woman who was supposed to be paying him for sex. But he soon meets an ailing con man, Enrico Razzo Rizzo, played by Dustin Hoffman, and things shift gear. Which certainly isn't to say that things get better. But at least now, the men have each other, and the relationship that ensues by turns hostile and tender gives the film its heart. Almost 50 years since the film's release, a book by Glenn Frankel takes a deep dive into, in Frankel's words, a dark, difficult masterpiece and the deeply gifted and flawed men and women who made it. Our writer, Keith Hopper, a critic of film and literature, has reviewed it in this week's TLS and joins us now to fill us in. It's good to have you with us, Keith. Delighted to be here. Um, I didn't know that Midnight Cowboy was critically um, not very well received. I sort of assumed when I first saw it, which was probably about... 10 years ago that it was an instant classic. I know it made lots of money at the box office and it won a bunch of Oscars. Of course, that doesn't really say much about its critical reception. But in fact, you begin with Roger Ebert's comment in 1969 uh, that the film comes heartbreakingly close to being the movie we want it to be, as in it didn't get there. Uh, So what did he mean by that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think it was a slow burn success. There was too many problematic qualities to it. I think it was new. It's part of the, the new Hollywood, the new American cinema, the breakdown of the studios, the relaxing of um, the censorship code. So it's a film that captures Hollywood in transition. I'm not sure that people knew what to make of it. Uh, Ebert is reliable, I think. Yeah, he said it comes heartbreakingly close to being the movie wanted to be. He thought that the performances stood out. John Voight as Joe, the the stud and Dustin Hoffman as the, the ailing con man that he hooks up with. But that he criticised Schlesinger, who was English, born and brought up in Hampstead, that he didn't really understand the American culture that he was, he was making his film about and that he should have let the performances carry the film instead. What does he describe it? I have it here. He dropped those performances into an offensively trendy, gimmick-ridden, tarted-up, vulgar exercise in fashionable cinema. And so, I mean, for, for him, it's it's very much then. So, I mean, to stick with Ebert for a second, what's interesting about him is that he, as you point out, he rewatches the film in, in 1994, so 25 years after uh, the film came out. And he says that it remains one of, so he sort of, it sort of seems like he's changing here a little bit. He says, uh, it remains one of a handful of films that stay in our memory after the other, others have evaporated. So that's not to say that he, he loves it now at all, but he's saying that he appreciates something new in it. Um, and he may not have meant this as a challenge when, when he said it, but you sort of took it as one, uh, didn't you? You, you? you start your piece by mentioning a, a vox pop. Yeah. So when, when I was asked to do this, as I said, I was interested in reading the book by Franco. But my memory of the film, I saw it 20 years ago and I didn't like it. I, I had a, a sense of it being slightly sleazy, seedy, which is probably the point. Um, but I felt uncomfortable about it. So I queued it up that night and I watched it with my wife and I didn't change my mind either. I still think it was a little seedy, a little sleazy. It feels very dated. And yet I think Ebert is right. There are moments in it that are groundbreaking. 
so I was interested then in that idea of how we remember, how we watch and, and review films. Uh, and I brought in in that Pauline Kale actually, because Kale insisted she never, the great New York critic, she never watched the film twice. What she wanted to convey was the experience of spectatorship. She gets the plot wrong all the time. <laughs> I mean, she is standing in for us, sitting in the dark, eating her ice cream. <laughs> and, you know, we, we don't always pick up exactly what's going on in our first viewing. So it was interesting to revisit in this way. And I thought, well, how do we remember films? Is Ebert right? So I did a Vox Pop with friends and colleagues. I've got a new job and it was a nice icebreaker with, with my new colleagues to say, what do you remember? But, but don't, don't cheat, you know, don't Google it. Don't look at clips on YouTube. And, and it, it kind of is interesting just to see what people do remember. So a film historian um, remembered Dustin Hoffman wearing a white suit in the opening of the film. I had no recollection of that whatsoever. And in fact, when I watched it again, it passed me by and I had to rewind. Yeah, it's, it's funny. It's, I mean, that's one of the things that I most remember is sort of his, his increasingly filthy white suit, which is sort of like a kind of a fallen first communicant. Yes. So, I mean, when did you last see it? You saw 10 years um, ago. So I first saw it about 10 years ago, I reckon. And then probably only last year, actually. I was going to try and watch it again before we spoke today, but um, I didn't get round to it. And possibly that a third time would have been <laughs> would have been too much. Yeah. Um, but it is, it is very compelling, this idea, isn't it, about uh, the way we piece together a film afterwards from the memories that we have of it. I was watching... Um, have you seen Room 237? Yeah. A documentary by Rodney Asher, and it's about The Shining, and it's about all of the theories that different people have um, attached to the film, you know, that it's an apology for um, for the massacre of, of, of Native Americans or uh, a, a reckoning with the Holocaust. Um, and it sort of, in a way, doesn't really matter what the film itself was by this point because it meant all of this to these people, and they have built they have built a whole life on it, you know, a life for this work. Yeah. And I think when Roger Ebert revisits it 25 years later, it had just been accepted into the Library of Congress as a film worth preserving. And I suppose when you look back on it now, it doesn't really matter whether you like the film or not or whether it's any good or not. Its timing was good. You know, a month after it was released, the Stonewall riots broke out. And I suppose 25 years on, you look back and say, well, it was groundbreaking. It raises the issue of homosexuality in a way we hadn't really seen on screen before. Now, that's not to say its representation isn't without problems. I mean, some people find it homophobic. And there's, you know, Frankel, Glenn Frankel, the author of the book, allows for that too. So it's interesting just to see that I suppose it marks a transitional moment. It seems to stand for something in the counterculture that will be remembered, even if it's not. I think off the standard of, say, you mentioned Taxi Driver, Glenn Frankel, um, very late in the book, compares it. He said the legacy is the way that it initiates a lot of these New York films from like Toulouse and Dog Day Afternoon and so on. Um, but he mentions Taxi Driver and he picks up a really important point about it that I hadn't got on my first viewing is that Joe Buck, the, the cowboy in the film, the, the stud, the gigolo, is um, was in the army. Now, if he was in the army in in that period, presumably he had been in Vietnam. It's never mentioned. And there's only one shot of him in his uniform. He goes back to his little sleepy town in Texas to discover that his grandmother who raised him is, is dead, her shop is closed up, and he's homeless. And you get a sense, it comes out more strongly, I think, in, in the novel. Um, 
that uh, he felt at home in the army amongst the company of men. But he, it is a, a novel really, and a film about loneliness. But we only get that one snapshot of Joe in his uniform. And at the end, Len Frankel makes a very valid comparison between it and Taxi Driver, that it's both about traumatized Vietnam vets. You know, so it's, it's an interesting film. The, the more you talk about it, everyone is picking something different out of it. So I suppose in that sense, it, it, it is a, a successful piece. Do you think the um, the Vietnam point and, and what you said about the counterculture, that's also why it's seen as an important film, because it really is on that hinge. There's, there's Stonewall and there's also the, the, there's a lot of souring politically, isn't there, and a lot of violence and a lot of uh, people, um, you know, uh, protesting about things. Um, things are beginning to change. Do you think that's it's got the timing right for that? Yeah, and I, I mean, I can see why Roger e, both Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael saw John Schlesinger as an outsider coming to America and misinterpreting the country. But actually, I thought he brought a kind of outsider's perspective to it, a kind of fascination when you see Joe walking along the streets of New York. And it struck me, actually, one of the parodies is that in Crocodile Dundee, you know, the outsider in New York experiencing for the first time. I think Schlesinger uh, has the same sensibility here. There's a sense that the city itself is a character, that it's a dangerous, violent, but exciting place. And when he's cruising around 42nd Street where the gay hustlers are, I mean, it's not clear whether Joe is utterly naive or whether there is some kind of latent homosexuality. But either way, I think there are some incredible nighttime shots of him walking down through these dark streets. And you really do get a sense of the kind of excitement. There is something in the air, but we never really find out what that is. So I, I think, again, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to change my mind entirely having this conversation. I'm beginning to think, yes, it is a masterpiece <laughs> because of the way it captures the disorientation of the outsider. Yeah. So this, this, this book, Frankel's book, um, he works his way through the different uh, men and women involved in, in the making of the film. And, and one of them is the cinematographer, Adam Hollander. Uh, he played a very significant role in the way that it looks and not everyone was pleased about it, but he was an outsider as well. They're all outsiders to some degree, because this is, I think, part of, as we said, the studio system is beginning to break down uh, and the new Hollywood system is beginning to open up. And that's largely to do with uh, a new style of director influenced by the author theory, I think, in the French New Way. But these would be the film brats, people like Coppola and Scorsese and the Palma and I suppose to a certain degree, George Lucas even and uh, Steven Spielberg in their early days. You know, these are the first group of directors, unlike John Ford or Fred Zinnemann, you know, who worked their way up through the studio system to become directors. They, they're the first group of film brats who studied film at university. They went to film school. And I think they're bringing a different sensibility to it. You know, film language really is a history of technology. And as the technology changes, so does film language. And we started off, you know, silent, going in sound, black and white to color. Then in the 50s, you know, when TV was a rival, we got these big cinematic uh, cinescope screens and so on. The problem with that is that the cameras got bigger and bigger and bigger. And the camera that was typically used at the time, a Mitchell BNC, they're about the size of a small car, you know? It, great on, on, on a set, not so good shooting outside. So the French new wave, too much is made of the author, not enough of the cinematographers. 
the people who got these lightweight cameras left over from the Second World War, and you could basically make a film with two people, sound recordist and a, a camera operator. And I think Hollander is coming out of that school. So he, again, he's an outsider, but he's coming with a different sensibility. And the, the, the New York camera crew apparently disapproved because um, he uses natural lighting. He uses stolen shots. So these would be filmed without the knowledge or consent of bystanders. So all those shots of John Voigt dressed as a cowboy walking through the streets of New York, that's all stolen footage. And there's a great um, energy to it, I think. And I, I imagine in 1969, if you were an American film goer, you had never seen anything like that before. Mm. It must have been very exciting. Um, well, uh, on that point, I mean, there's, there's the stars themselves, of course. Um, they had been, you know, Dustin Hoffman had just come from the graduate, more or less. So he was a he was a known entity. Um, so where were they up to in their careers at this point, Hoffman and, and Voigt as well? well? Well, that's really interesting. And, and just before we go into actors, to say how collaborative it was, one of the things I really love about Franklin's book, so he gives credit to the, um, to the director and to the original writer, but he brings in people, collaborators you don't always get to hear about. So there's a costume designer, Anne Roth, really innovative. She's got a lovely quote, there are actors and there are movie stars, and I don't work with movie stars. <laughs> and, and she's signaling the arrival of the method style. I mean, you know, the method was there since the 50s with Brando and Monty Clift. Um, this is the second generation of it, but they're very a very aggressive generation that will include people like De Niro and um, Al Pacino. And so, as you say, Hoffman was already a very unlikely star, you know, um, the, the, from The Graduate, 1967. Um, I think actually, if the, if I have a a quarrel with the film, first it's that I think it's overly influenced by The Graduate, far too much kind of soundtrack. Mm. Also, I think Schlesinger it probably is in awe of Hoffman a little bit. Um, although he'd worked with some big actors, you know, in England, Alan Bates, Julie Christie, and so on, I think this is a different style of acting. And uh, apparently, Hoffman turned up in character when he first met Schlesinger. Schlesinger was a bomb viveur. He arranged to meet him in a, in, a, in a fine Manhattan restaurant. And Hoffman turned up as, as Ratzel with his limp and his dirty suit and, and so that's on. That's a bold move, isn't it? It's, it's a bold move. And, and, and that's what Hoffman said, that he realised when he was on set that the director, Schlesinger, wanted to be surprised all the time. He said he craved collaboration. Hoffman's performance, I think, has dated. You know, it looks like he's method acting. You know, with the limp... The clothes, uh, the greasy hair, he, the, the accent is turned up full volume. Whereas I think Voigt's character is much more contained. And I think it survived. And I was really interested too, when I did my Vox Pump, the number of feminists who really found him really, really attractive, really seductive. I think it was that mixture of naivety, but also that great physical beauty, you know? So I, I, I think they got lucky uh, but again, I think there was a great degree of bravery in the casting, you know. Can I um, can I pick up what you were saying about the soundtrack? As you were saying, like the graduates, very, very, the, the soundtrack's very, very important in that and very heavily influenced because the yeah. the soundtrack that nearly happened for it, they had an astonishing um, selection of, of songs to choose from, didn't they? Again, what fascinated me about this was not only how we misremember, but the things that didn't make it into the film seemed more interesting and some of the things that did. So, you know, a lot of people remember Everybody's Talking, uh, performed by Harry Nielsen. That was a temp track. So that means that 
when they're in the editing studio, they play this to help guide the edits. And then Schlesinger eventually thought that the, the emotional spirit of the lyrics captured the lead character's um, subjectivity. But the songs that didn't make the cut, so Joni Mitchell wrote the ballad of Midnight Cowboy, but it, it was found to be too literal. And in fact, you know, if you listen to it and, and, and read the lyrics, you know, it, it, it's almost like a, a Greek chorus on the film. It wouldn't have worked. The fascinating ones are Leonard Cohen, Leonard Cohen singing Bird on the Wire over the phone to the producer. Yeah, so is this before he's released Bird on the Wire? Is it for the film? No, he didn't write it for the film, but he very much wanted it to be in the movie. But he had that song and he said, well, because it seemed to me that Bird on the Wire would have been very good as well. It would have it would have been incredibly evocative. And the really fascinating one was Bob Dylan wrote Lay, Lady Lay for the film, but he delivered it too late. Can you imagine Midnight Cowboy with Lay, Lady Lay? You know, the, those scenes where the first woman that Joe encounters in his new career as a gigolo turns out to hustle him. That would have been interesting to have something like Lay, 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 Lay. Uh, a later scene when he does actually get a first and only paying customer, beautiful actor, Brenda Vaccaro. Uh, I think she takes some of the misogynistic sting out of it. But again, you can imagine that Lay, 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 Lay would have worked beautifully there. So it's not only how we misremember a film, it's about how we reimagine it, thinking about all the possibilities that were there. Um, well, in, in the end, the critics, um, and, and we'll do it now as well, um, always come back to the, the duo at the film's heart, Joe and Ratso. Uh, they tend to be compared to Lenny and George um, in Of Mice and Men, but you have your own theory. I think it's really convincing, given um, Schlesinger's background as well, as, uh, about the tradition in which the couple sits. Yeah, so, I mean, Frankel mentions Steinbeck, Lenny and George, and compares it to Ratso and, and, and Joe. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an easy comparison. Um, but I, I, I thought a more powerful precursor was Beckett. Uh, when you think of Didi and Gogo and Waiting for Godot or Ham and Clove, that kind of mutually dependent sadomasochism in Endgame. And I think that, to me, that makes sense because not only was Schlesinger began his career in the theatre in London in the 1950s when Beckett would have been the big thing, um, James Hurley, who wrote the novel, Jim Hurley, uh, he had gone to Black Mountain College, uh, a very experimental place, had become friends with Anais Nin. He moved out to the Pasadena Playhouse, again, very groundbreaking in his time in California, became a playwright, wrote some very groundbreaking stuff, a play called Blue Denim in 1957, which was about teenage um, pregnancy and abortion. I mean, very daring stuff. So they would have been aware of avant-garde theatre. So I, I, I think, I didn't go into it in that detail, but I think it makes sense of it, this idea of European absurdism, because there's a strange self-reflexivity that I had forgotten and misremembered. But again and again throughout the film, Joe is preening, looking at himself in the mirror. He's never had anyone to tell him that he's, he's good, he's, he's, he's handsome. He's making it up himself and he's constantly looking in the mirror. And when he turns around to capture his reflection in the mirror, he breaks the fourth wall. So it's this constant kind of locking out into the audience. I mean, Midnight Cowboy, the title probably works on lots of different levels, but the idea of him watching movies all the time, he's created his own persona because he's being neglected. He simply watches movies. The opening shot, it's a little contrived, but it's a slow pullback. And we get this long shot of a deserted drive-in cinema in 
in Texas. And in front of it, very unlikely, is a little boy in a cowboy suit riding a little wooden rocking horse. I mean, I don't know what a little boy is doing riding a rocking horse in front of an empty drive-in. But again, once you realize by the end of the film that perhaps this is about traumatized memory, particularly of, as we said, of a, a Vietnam vet, it is a symbolist film. These are all images that are being thrown in together that captures the subjectivity of this damaged man whose life has been built around movies. Well, um, if all that doesn't make people want to go and, and watch the film again, um, possibly while listening to Dylan, um, I don't know. I don't know. Well, what I would say, too, is um, as part of writing this, it was a really fun thing to do. I hadn't heard of the novelist, James Leo Hurley. Um, he wrote a couple of books, uh, All Fall Down, which I've just bought, and The Season of the Witch. I really recommend them. He's, he's kind of fallen off the map. But the novel of Midnight Cowboy is really interesting. It's in the third person, but punctuated with these long scenes of interior monologue. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think while I'd plug the film, I would certainly recommend Jim, Jim Hurley too. Excellent. Well, um, Keith Hopper, thank you very much for, for that recommendation and, and for talking us through the film. It's been uh, lovely talking to you. Lovely talking to you. Still to come on the show, what does Brexit mean for publishers and writers and the secret diary of the most dangerous man in Europe? And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. And... We are happy to announce the return of the exclusive TLS subscription offer, exclusive that is, to our podcast listeners. For just £5 or $5 or the equivalent in whatever currency you use, you will receive six issues of the TLS and that's print and digital. So you'll have the paper turning up on your doorstep every week where you'll find all the pieces we've talked about on this podcast alongside dozens of other pieces, as well as getting access to everything online and in the app edition should you find yourselves waiting for a bus without your print issue handy. The digital access also includes the website and app archives and the historical archive, which goes back to 1902. So you can look up Walter de la Mare and T.S. Eliot and read what Virginia Woolf made of D.H. Lawrence, Joseph Conrad and Aldous Huxley. There's original writing by Roland Barthes, Saul Bellow, John Updike, Muriel Spark, Chinua Achebe, Patricia Highsmith, Umberto Eco and Susan Sontag and poems by Hardy, Auden, Frost, Plath, Larkin, Brodsky, Paul Muldoon, and Anne Carson. So there's really quite a lot to be getting on with. Go to the-tls.co.uk forward slash pod to take up this offer. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. Before we sneak a read of this secret diary we're teasing you with, let's turn briefly to this week's NB column because there's some thematic overlap that will become apparent. Our writer, the ever mysterious MC, directs our attention to the impacts of Brexit only now being felt by publishers and writers. Um, Lucy, can you give us a gist? Yes, so it's quite complicated. Um, but I can read out what other people have said about it, which is it's the way to ensure that I do this properly. Um, it's that in June, the Intellectual Property Office launched a consultation regarding creations of the mind, which sounds cool, and copyright exhaustion, which doesn't. Um, but as, as MB says, it's a complicated business relating to international markets and the potential undercutting of earnings uh, about books being sold around the world and then re-imported to the UK. Um, And so there's a quote from Tom Weldon, who's the CEO of Penguin Random House UK. And he says, prior to leaving the EU, Britain was part of an agreement which allowed the free flow of books around Europe, while crucially ensuring that when an author's work was sold at lower price points around the globe, those same copies could not be resold into the domestic market. but it's possible now that these safeguards will be removed, which I think the danger is that then um, there will be lots of very cheap imports into the market, which means that the publishers and especially presumably the small publishers and the authors would would lose out. Wouldn't be able to compete with with those cut down prices. So do we have a, a sense of what? you know, what sort of loss we're talking about? Are there, are there any numbers? Well, I think it's all guess work mc talked to a campaign called save our books who are you know um understandably worried about this backed by the publishers association society of authors association of authors agents 
Authors Licensing and Collecting Society, and they thought that it might be as much as a 25% drop in, in revenue from physical sales. Apparently, the, the, there is an official sort of pronouncement that says, well, they did this in New Zealand and it's fine. But I don't know. Uh, presumably, the circumstances are very different. The, the thing is, nobody knows. No, and the thing, the other thing is, is that forever, um, the, the the British government seems to just point to other countries and say, "Oh, look, it worked out fine there in this one other country." Yeah, and I I think the the problem is that as as usual, I mean, it's it's going to um, it, it 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 will impinge um, as as most things do on on small businesses, small publishers. You know, the the great big houses don't don't want to take a, a cut but they could if they had to mm. smaller ones i think just can't um the consultation yeah. closes on august 31st we should say if people want to find out about it or you know write about it or anything oh well they can write to their mps they can i think you can write to your mps you can get um you can you can do that um but yes it's it's true i mean if penguin random house the the you know, money making giant that that it is worries about the cost of things you, you do have to ask what that means for the small um, and independent presses um but there's another there's another change and this 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 is not a word that I necessarily thought I would say on the TLS podcast but it has to do with VAT um regulations. yeah we're all about talking about <laughs> VAT regulations let's do, let's do five minutes on VAT regulations um I don't understand the ins and outs of it and I think it is actually genuinely quite complicated but I think the deal is that small businesses will have to register with the EU now from from Britain uh, small businesses from Britain which obviously includes small publishers and VAT is applicable on all sales at the rate charged in the customer's country mm. so that will introduce a um, a new expense uh, mm. presumably an absolute huge new load of admin um, mm. I think and a new expense and and the, the problem is that already some of the smaller publishers are um, won't be able to sell directly to the EU or you know um, will will certainly limit who they have to sell to well yeah I mean I I um, this is purely anecdotal but this is the only level on which I can participate um just the other day I had an email from uh, a publisher uh, a, a big big publisher uh, which I won't name uh, telling me that they can't send a book to my reviewer who's based in Italy because they've just been slapped with this massive uh, new VAT bill and it becomes prohibitive um, so I suppose that does make me wonder how we're supposed to keep our community of writers and readers as open and as international as we always have. Um, you, no one can answer that right now, I don't suppose. But um, it's a sorry old mess, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah. And the, well, the, the, the thing is that I think it's also it's uncertainty. It's mm. not clear yet what's going to happen. Mm. I mean, maybe maybe they will keep the safeguards and it will be fine. Maybe they won't, and people will have lots of extra expense. But the uncertainty is is certainly very difficult to live with. And you know, it's lovely talking about books and thinking about books and all of that. But people have to be able to make a living from it. Otherwise, there won't be a, there'll be far fewer books for us to talk about. Exactly. And and in the midst of all this uncertainty, if there's one thing that we can be certain about, it's that the British tabloids will uh, blame Europe for all of this. So that leads us nicely on to. Uh, your segment Lucy doesn't it? Yes it does because this week we are looking into the secret diary of the figure called by some the most dangerous man in Europe. Not a head of state, a shady advisor or a tech renegade but a bureaucrat. Michel Barnier, the EU's Brexit negotiator, has published a book called La Grande Illusion, Journal Secret du Brexit. As you might have guessed it's in French 
as yet untranslated. So we've asked our reviewer, Henri Astier, to unravel its mysteries for us. And we're delighted that Henri is here today to talk to us about it. Yes, I'm very happy to be here. So the title of it, La Grande Illusion, it has a couple of references um, and the subtitle has got quite another one for, for British readers. Can you can you unpack them for us, please? The La Grande Illusion is, of course, a, a masterpiece of French cinema filmed by Jean Renoir from 1937. And uh, I suppose that it, uh, Barnier, at the beginning of the book, says that... Uh, he, he was thinking of this great film, presumably because it's about wartime enmity, uh, enmity between uh, uh, German and uh, French officers during the First world, world War, I suppose, although it doesn't really elaborate on that. And the second uh, reference that Barnier talks about is uh, the, the Great Illusion, uh, which is uh, the uh, famous book by a famous essay by Norman Angel. Is that how you, how you pronounce his name? Um, on uh, the perils of nationalism that was published just before the, the First World War. So this is, uh, this is what Barney says. Um, for me, it's the, the secret diary was more evocative of that of uh, Adrian Mull, uh, just yes. because uh, Adrian Mull has a, a brush with the world of Westminster politician uh, that uh, he finds very difficult to deal with, and so does uh, Monsieur Barnier. I wonder, actually, because as we're saying, it's I think it's being translated perhaps right now. I wonder if they will go with a secret diary. I bet they don't, actually, for that reason, because... I bet they don't. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that it's going to pose a few challenges, I think, for translators, because he's got uh, a... Um, Barnier has a as an uh, epigraph, uh, a, a quote from King Lear, which does not exist. He made it up, or he, I don't know where he got it <laughs> from. That, that's bold. He made up his own Shakespeare. It's a very strong move, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Something about uh, banish reason. I, I wish I had the book in front of me. I should, but I don't. Um, so how are they going to translate that uh, that spurious quote. Well, his Shakespearean um, uh, ambitions aside, what kind of book is it? Is it is it like a diary? On Monday, I you know went to Poland, did some negotiating, and had eggs for breakfast. Or is it a, a very careful construct? Which, which which is it? Or is it something in between? It's. I think it's a, a it's a bit of both. I think the basis of it is a day to day diary. So you know, I had uh, breakfast with uh, David Davis. Uh, I met uh, the Polish Prime Minister, we discussed this and that, um, but uh, they, he elaborates quite a lot and it's clear that some bits are, are in hindsight, so it's, it's mostly a straightforward diary though. I know, I know this isn't really the, the point, but um, what's he like as, a, as a, prose, a prose stylist? I mean, I note the use of, of, of the phrase two to tango, which is always slightly worrying. <laughs> Uh, he actually is surprisingly good. I was I was expecting a lot of EU jargon, and there is a little bit of that, especially in the introduction. But uh, he actually is able to write quite clearly, quite lucidly, and quite uh, briefly. So uh, I think both uh, for a uh, Eurocrat and uh, for a French politician, he is he is a good writer. 
Well, that's that's good to know. Um, and can you remind us? I was alluding to this in in the um, in the trails and in the um, in the introduction. Why he was called by some British tabloids the most dangerous man in Europe? Yes, I think uh, that was uh, a very good point that you made in your introduction, because he was seen by many in you know among uh, in, in the British press and in the in the tabloids in general as a as a rabid anglophone. Uh, that was it's completely unwarranted. That is not true at all. His background is he was a senior minister in various centre-right French government. He was uh, the, uh, the foreign minister for, for, for a while. And he was never seen as a contender uh, for the top job. Uh, he was a rather grey, withdrawn figure, quite cautious, a consensus seeker. Um, when the uh, centre-right was voted out of office, in uh, 1997, in France, uh, he decided uh, to seek a career uh, at uh, in the uh, European Union. He became an EU commissioner. He had had previous lower-ranking jobs with the EU, so he was familiar with the way Brussels worked. And there as well, he uh, was widely respected as a safe pair of hands, which is, I think, key to his being picked for the job uh, as a uh, Brexit negotiator in uh, June uh, 2016. Uh, the, he, he was not seen as somebody who, who would rock the boat. It was very important. He was picked by the uh, president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude uh, Juncker at the time. Uh, and he, uh, Barney was, was ideal. Uh, he was not a self-promoter. Uh, he was a he was a, a strong EU man who uh, understood the uh, virtues of consensus, and he also had obviously um, very good contacts in the in the French government. So his nomination was uh, seen as the as a safest course from uh, from the EU's uh, point of view, which is uh, and that was not at all. Uh, how it was perceived on this side of the channel. It was described as a declaration of war, I think, by, by the Sun. Even uh, the Independent, I think, uh, said that it was a provocation by uh, Jean-Claude Juncker to nominate him, which is, it certainly wasn't. When, when you, we get into the book, um, given that that's the sort of figure he is, once the referendum has happened, does, does his diary reveal a very different approach to Brexit between Britain and the EU countries. I'm thinking about uh, what you talk about in terms of organisation and practicality. Um, the uh, UK was completely unprepared. There was no plan for Brexit. Uh, it was just put to a vote without any any clear vision. We didn't really know what it what it meant. The, the British weren't sure what they were exactly voting for. It uh, just out of the EU without any details. Uh, on the EU side, things were very different because as soon as uh, David Cameron won the 2015 election on the promise of holding such a such a referendum, they sensed danger, and they set in uh, in motion a whole process with a uh, a commission uh, set uh, actually headed by a British. Uh, 
civil servant, Jonathan Paul, and uh, they, they put all the all the uh, processes in uh, in motion so that if it came to that, if the referendum was for leave, they had the whole negotiation uh, tactics and strategy uh, worked out. Mm-hmm. So this is not anything to do with it's not anything to do with political position whether you thought it should be leave or remain. This is just a question of one side was really organized about it and the other side actually had to do a lot of catching up. Yes, because on the EU side, obviously, whether it was leave or remain was out of their hands. So uh, all they they had just to prepare for for the worst and, and minimize the the damage because it was it was always clear and uh, Barnier says it right from the start and all other EU leaders said it. Uh, it was Brexit was lose-lose. Everybody was going to lose. The question is, how can we limit the damage and uh, you know make the best uh, out of a, a very bad situation? And you say um, that he was chosen for this job because he was uh, you know a, a quiet sort, not much, not one for self promotion. Um, to publish this book isn't exactly a, the act of a shy and retiring man, I suppose. But I also I also saw something about a, a potential presidential bid. Um, for next year's French elections, is that is that founded? I just saw it briefly. Yes, um, I saw that as well. There are reports, but he's seventy-one years old. I don't think that this is going to happen. I don't think that uh, he um, has the the bottle for that sort of thing. And um, I think that he acquired a lot of a, a high profile. In the process of of these negotiations, and that might have given him some ideas or people around him. But he, you know, he is at, at his age. You don't reinvent yourself as a potential leader. People like uh, or potential. Well, I mean, Joe Biden would disagree. No, but he's been doing it for years, <laughs> isn't he? I suppose I know, but I mean, in terms of age, that his, his being seventy-one, we seem to live in a world in which it doesn't matter anymore. <laughs> I'm not being I'm not being ageist. Uh, certainly, I'm not in a position to be ageist. <laughs> but uh, uh, Joe Biden had his first uh, presidential bid when he was in his forties, and uh, mm. you know, Barnier, he's just not not that uh, type of uh, of person. He's not the, the driven type like Mitterrand, who spent decades seeking that job, or Chirac, mm. uh, or even Sarkozy. So I don't think that this is going to happen. You have to be ruthless. Uh, and I, I I, don't think this is going to work. Actually, speaking of that, I was going to say, you say, like, he's much kinder, you say, about, for instance, Theresa May than many people in her own party. He doesn't see the book. You don't think he's not trying to use it as a means of taking revenge or getting back at anyone or anything like that. Absolutely not. Uh, and that was actually one of the things that surprised me most by in, in you know, reading this book is that, first of all, yes, he is very kind to uh, Theresa May. Uh, you know, she, he says repeatedly she's a courageous woman who uh, decided to uh, voted was against uh, Brexit, but uh, courageously stepped up to get the job done. Uh, and um, he has nothing but but kind words for her. He also has kind words for David Davis, a hard Brexiteer. He is uh, not at all a, an, an Anglophobe. On the contrary, he pays repeatedly 
uh, homage. And in, in general, um, you know, he really is very impressed by, um, by, by the quality of the British uh, um, public service. He is also, he has very, very kind ways, very impressed, uh, and I think any French person, certainly I was, uh, by the, the debate in, uh, in, the, in the comments, the quality of the, of the debate, because it is often, uh, the, the public debate was very acrimonious. But uh, if you listen to the, what was said in Parliament, uh, it was really, you, you really have um, substantive discussions, serious discussions. And it was, uh, yes, it's, it's, it, it's not, it was not really name, name calling. And he, so he also talks about that as well. And finally, can you explain to us, tell us your thoughts about um, what, what the process has to do with with ideas that go all the way back to the Enlightenment. Yes, I think that uh, what was what really struck me in in all this, and this is perhaps another aspect of his uh, his Anglophilia, uh, Barney's Anglophilia, is that um, the way that the uh, British conducted the negotiation. was very much uh, out of character, and that really surprises uh, Barney because they were uh, the once the decision to leave the uh, European Union was was made by the British people. It was a democratic decision uh, that um, commanded respect, and um, you, you know you, you couldn't deny that it was the the will of the of the British people, albeit, uh, you know, 52-48 is not a landslide, but still it's a, it's, it's a majority. But once that decision was made, the way to implement it, how are we going to make it work, was done completely from number 10. And there was, there were uh, parliament, uh, both uh, Theresa May and, um, and uh, Johnson, Try to sideline Parliament, and they had to be made uh, to. There were some Supreme Court rulings um, that said, "No, you have to. It has to be a, a Parliament has has to to have a say." Um, there were, but there was, they, they, there was no attempt to actually actively involve Parliament or the constituent parts of the United Kingdom in those negotiations, which is in complete contrast with what happened on the on the EU side and the EU side the, the there was parliament was consulted the EU parliament was consulted every step of the way there was a committee to watch Barnier that uh, in in the building with him so they they, they were involved uh, EU um, MPs were were involved and as we said, the, the governments were all the governments were were involved as well, whether directly when he flew there or through the uh, the, the council of uh, of ministers. And uh, the the idea there that I get from that is that it was Britain who um, taught the world, you know, in in the 18th century that decision, central decision by diktat doesn't really work. If you consult people, 
you you have a, a legitimacy that you don't when it's the you know the, the product of uh, one person imposing uh, imposing his or her will and um, that was that's that's very much an enlightenment idea that's what that's what Britain taught Europe at uh, in um, in the 18th century and I think that now uh, the the Europeans were united precisely because they all they had these this consultation and uh, you know however much the British try to um, divide uh, the the EU they were not able to just because of those those systems put in place just to make sure that that everybody within the Europe was was on the same page and trusted uh, that that single negotiator that was uh, uh, Barnier was. Well, Henri, thank you very much for um, enlightening us about that today. Okay, okay, thank you very much. is all we have time for this week our thanks go to keith hopper and henri astier thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by ben mitchell we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me goodbye deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.